Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dick's Only Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam. Glad to see you on the other side of the desk again, too. <laughs> it's been a while since you've been in here, you traveller you. It has been a while, but <laughs> yes. come on, you've been travelling too. True. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I have to admit to that, of course, as well. But there you go. But the world is an interesting place and sometimes you want to see some of it. Well, absolutely, yes. Um, I have had to readjust to a different climate back here, yes. which is a bit of a... Well, actually, I had I had more trouble um, acclimatising to the weather in Japan. Because so what was the was weather like? Was freezing. Oh, it was cold, was it? Oh. oh, I had on five layers of clothing and I was still frozen. <laughs> I was so cold. Oh, dear. Oh, well, um, that does, you know, sort of show you what the world is like. I mean, you go away and you end up in places where the climate's completely different to what you're used to at home. And I mean, I in Madagascar, we had days of nearly 40 degrees on I this know, trip over. So I know, it so. was just horrendously <laughs> hot. Yes. So it went in the other direction. Yep. So, but anyhow, you... It's all part of it. Of course it is. You get, and it gives you something to whinge about. <laughs> but I tell you what, I tell you what, the autumn chill really brought out those autumn colourings. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Of just... Course. That's why if you go to places like Japan or you go to the east coast of North America, you know, through Vermont and all those areas where they do fall really well, um, uh, that's why they get those sort of colours. I mean, we emulate it to a little extent in places like the Dandenongs and Macedon, but we never get quite the same intensity of colours that they can get Mm. in those parts of the world. Amazing. And of course, uh, of course, the whole hillside is just coloured. Mm. And you know, you're so used to seeing our Australian bush, and it's basically well, it's grey green, yeah. grey green. Yeah. Yes, you know, and to just see colour everywhere, even when it's not planted in a garden, is beyond belief. Yeah, well, it's stunningly good. It's one of those things. One day I'll do as well. I think is uh, uh, trouble is I <coughs> I tend not to get away at that time of the year, um, very often. And so I don't sort of do autumnally things uh, yes. uh, overseas because it's sort of our high season here and it's a bit hard to get away. But anyhow, one day, one day, I'll... Well, I know the one thing that's happened to everyone that was on this tour is that, um, of course, the the attention to detail in Japanese gardens <coughs> is yes. beyond belief. Absolutely. It's frightening, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's scary. Yeah. And, of course, with all the weather that's been happening back here, everyone on tour has come home to, to gardens that have turned to wilderness and <laughs> weeds sort of that you've got to part the way through to get mm. through. And um, Yes, yeah, so I think we're all feeling that our gardens are a little bit... Um, <laughs> mm. Well, Not open for the public at the moment, that's no, for sure. No, you wouldn't, but uh, I have to say there's a, a, an aesthetic there that we probably can't emulate anyway. I mean, it's quite a different sort of thing, and the people who spend a lot of time creating a Japanese garden here, I can't quite understand the point, because, I mean, you can plant a garden that has an oriental feel, I, I can get that, but to try and do a, an authentic Japanese garden in an environment like Australia just seems somehow pointless to me. And and you usually can't afford to employ the number of gardeners required for yeah. pinching out all the dead pine needles and, uh, yeah, and you know. Yeah, and picking up the leaf all the off pruning. the moss. <laughs> um, well, they, yeah, they were actually sweeping the moss. Yeah. Yes. Mm. I mean, it's just... Craziness. Yeah. And of course, we can't grow the moss. 
no. uh, in this climate. You exactly. Know, and, and anything we can plant that might even vaguely emulate moss is not quite the same. Thing, no, it's you know. not at all. You know, so, yeah, so we can't really create those sort of things. And, and of course, anybody who then starts putting in Japanese lanterns and, and zigzaggy bridges and things. Well, if it's just stuck there without the context, yeah. it's going and to be And we don't understand the, um, uh, the background of all That's that right. stuff. So we don't understand the sort of uh, symbolicness of it. So we whack a Japanese lantern in a garden and it means nothing. Whereas yes. the Japanese do things like that and they have specific purposes in mind and they, and they have you know, and thousands of years of tradition behind it. Exactly. And, and what have you. So, yeah. Well, and you even have different shaped lanterns for different uh, purposes. Yeah, yeah. So one is designed specially for catching snow, for instance. Yeah. And so, you know, we don't have that background. Don't have that much snow. <laughs> but I, I, I will tell you one thing. I think for garden designers, um, there's some fantastic details that I can see being incorporated into very contemporary gardens oh, here. Yes. Mm. Um, the attention to pathways, for instance, is incredible, and they look so contemporary. They're, they're basically a walking meditation. Mm. You have to concentrate on where you're walking. You have to slow down your steps, and that's the whole point of it, to make you slow down mm. and look at your sued. environment. You'd get sued here. Yes. People would be on their iPhone and they'd trip straight they'd over trip a rock straight and end up, up in exactly, the fish pond. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I can see that happening. Oh, <laughs> yep. uh, dear. But, um, but, yeah, an awful lot to learn, a fantastic place to visit. But um, having been there once, I don't feel a need to go back. Isn't that interesting? Yes. And, I mean, whereas France, I mean... I'm probably about to go back for the third time, you know, and, and I can happily visit France, you know, I think time and time again. I think outside, completely outside your cultural experience, and it's an experience and it's, it's something that you should do, but it's not necessarily something that makes you feel mm. all that dreadfully comfortable sometimes, and you, you can't sort of enmesh yourself in it. Whereas if you go to France, I know we speak different languages, but there's a, a, a shared history in lots of ways. So yes. You can go there and feel sort of vaguely comfortable. Yes. Yeah, so well, go. I mean, the fact that it's European and we've, we've been brought up with so many European traditions for mm. so long that I think you do feel much more of a, an instant affinity. Oh, Pl- yeah. Plus, a lot of it has the same climate. We understand that Mediterranean climate. Mm. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yes, by the way, good morning, Virginia. Yes, good morning, Virginia Hayward. <laughs> I haven't been to Japan, but I'm very keen to go. I'm going to go with one of my friends, Gay. We've decided it's going to be one of our outings. Well... I can honestly, honestly recommend, you know, seeing the gardens and particularly in autumn time, it really is stunningly good. Um, I've been told from other people who've been there in cherry blossom time that it's, autumn is actually better mm. because there's so much in flower and you can miss your cherry blossoms. Oh, I yeah, mean, by days you can That's you right, can that's right. Whereas the autumn colour hangs around. I and have got an absolutely stunning flowering cherry in my garden mm. and I can miss that. Mm. And, I go, and I'm, I live there. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes, that's right. So one you don't wind, have to go anywhere. Yeah. Yes, one wind and yep. it's gone. Yeah. Yep. Well, yep. I call cherries barometer plants because as soon as they come into flower, the wind picks up. Mm. Yeah, and... I sometimes wonder about the purpose in life of a big tree like that that you have for five minutes and then it's over. Mm. Um, I don't mind having crocuses that take up a little tiny posse and you've got to rush out to see them in flower. But if I've got a big tree that I'm anticipating in flower and you quite literally only get a few days out of it, I don't know that it's paying its way personally. Mm. 
I, I think that's true, and I've got a lot like that. Mm. I keep putting trees in, and I haven't got anywhere to put them anymore. I've got to move into the paddock now. Mm. <laughs> and I look at the paddock, and I think, why the hell did I plant that? <laughs> uh, I, I must say, before we continue on, that... Um, Meryl Johnson from Country Farm Perennials was, um, was going to be on the program this morning, which was going to be fantastic for, for all the people that were on tour with me because um, I actually bumped into Meryl in Kyoto yeah. for two mornings in a row. She was leading a tour over there as well. And you weren't on her tour. You I wasn't on her <laughs> tour. <laughs> yes, it's bizarre. And, and so the two of us were going to be able to have a wonderful in-depth discussion about... Um, Gardens that we'd both visited, places which she mm. went that I hadn't gone, and it was going to be great. But um, for, uh, for listeners, Meryl is going to be on um, the first Sunday in February, along with you, Stephen. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to postpone that discussion of J- Japanese gardens um, in detail with her because she's actually running two, two tours next year, one to time with the cherry blossom mm. and one again to go back in autumn time. So, um, so uh, we will go into, into great um, detail um, first Sunday in February. So that's a promise to all the listeners who really um, were saying to me, come on, we want to hear all about Japan as soon as you get back. But, mm. um, yes, who just wait. <laughs> who, whose tour were you on, Pam? Um, I was with ASA, Australian oh, Studying right, Abroad, yes. um, Jim Fogarty, Landscape designer extraordinaire. He's mm. one. He's one. Now that was his first tour. You can just tell me. You don't have to tell anybody else. How did he go? <laughs> we had a great time. Good. And that's where it stops. Yeah. <laughs> what happens on tour stays on tour. Yeah, that's, that's fair always enough, the rule. Pam, that's fair enough. <laughs> I've never critted you on no, air. No, no, that's true. That's true. I just wanted a little dirt, but you know. No, 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 no. I don't give dirt on air. <laughs> it is high time. I do introduce uh, Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm. Good morning, Graham. Good morning, everybody out there in listening land and, and to all the panel in here. It's nice, really interesting to hear, hear you talk about Japan and um, the fact that uh, there's one university that in Japan, a university at Kifu, that specialises uh, with roses. Okay. So, so they're extremely enlightened people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you you and, would say that. And of course Especially we, in front of you. We, yes. we get envious about all the colours in the gardens, but if you can grow roses, you've got colour for nine months of the year. Yes. 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 True, true, true. And, yes. and the interesting thing also, on a serious side, um, they've just recently uh, opened a garden uh, where the uh, bombs went off. And, um, Hiroshima. Yes, I believe there's nearly a mi- half a million roses in the garden. Wow. And it's a, it's a gentle reminder for those clowns of the world who are our rulers that are rattling the sabre about um, uh, nuclear possibilities in the world. Come on, fellas, let's get real. Well, let's remember that the thing that lived closest to the uh, epicentre of Nagasaki yes. was a cockroach. Yes. Well, they are going to take over eventually. Convinced <laughs> <laughs> of that. <laughs> <laughs> their place. <laughs> to be honest, I think that's that's one of the other things about um, visiting Japan. The cities, um, of course, were flattened. Mm. I, mean, yeah. I mean, Tokyo was flattened. So it's not a pretty city mm. because you don't have that history of the buildings. Yeah. And they've gone up. They're all modern. They're all grey. They're all sort of cement block mm. type buildings. You almost feel like you're walking... Well, to me, I felt like I was almost walking through um, a, a concrete jungle of, of, of high-rise um, public housing mm. estates. 
So you don't have that. That I mean, you walk through Paris, mm. and yeah. the You've history, got those wonderful the, boulevards, those fantastic right. buildings all that's around. That's right. You. Mm. you you don't have that, and so um, I found the cities less interesting than mm. getting out into the countryside. Mm. The countryside is where you're really seeing. You know, the real Japan, for want of a better word. But um, you're getting your old historical buildings and houses and shop fronts and, and that's, that's where you really need to go to to, so that, to get so, a real taste so of it. So that's Pam's tip about those who want to travel to Japan, get out in the countryside. Absolutely. Just be in the city for a little while yeah. and get out into the... But, I mean, if you, yeah. if, you want to see, if you want to see the most glorious gardens, you really do need to go to Kyoto because so many of the gardens mm. in Kyoto are just temple gardens, which are, you know, so many of, of those temples did survive in yeah. Kyoto. So that is really the epicentre of, of your gardens. But um, the other place that I really would recommend if people are planning a trip, um, and that was quite a way to travel. We had to... Um, we had quite a long trip, but we went to the Adachi Museum of Art, mm-hmm. um, which is right over on the west side of Tokyo, and that, I would say, was had to be the highlight of the whole trip. It's stunning, mm-hmm. stunning, stunning. The garden itself there is just amazing. It's designed to look at through the windows as you wander through the museum, but mm-hmm. it's just incredible. Really incredible, and and then the contents within the museum also is amazing. The 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 quality of the artwork, the quality of the other um, items on display, mm. it it is well worth the trip. It really is. So um, oh, that's another go. little hint. Good. Yep. So there you go. Time we moved on to. Have we got uh, any announcements? Is anything happening <laughs> now? Probably not. Very very little. But yes. um, in true form, of course, uh, Christmas time is the time when events take place up at Cloud Hill. Ah yes, of course. So uh, in in uh, in true form, again, he is having Shakespeare in the garden. Mm-hmm. This year, it's going to be the Tempest. Uh, this is being presented by Ozat, and uh, this will be running 29th and 30th of December. Uh, now, adults $35, under 16 $25. Uh, now, that's a twilight event. Um, you do need to go to the website uh, or just, just type in Cloud Hill and it will all come up uh, to book for that one. But as well as that, uh, on the Saturday the 13th of January, they've got uh, a musical group uh, playing ancient rhythms and melodies from Anatolia and the old world that's called Sultan again you can book online for that one then coming up on Saturday 27th of January they've got opera in the garden with Victoria Opera that will take place on 27th uh, as I said of January 6:30 till 9 p.m. cost for that one is adults 45 under 16 30 and um, finally Saturday 10th of February and I will mention these ones when we're back on air uh, they've got uh, the Evergreen Ensemble Snow in Summer and they pay homage to the music of the cold and windswept landscapes of the Scottish Highlands and Islands and uh, as well as exploring their Scandinavian ties. So, uh, a lot Does that of mean bagpipes? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of events happening um, up at Cloud Hill over the, uh, over the summer break. So... Uh, as I say, if you want more information or if you want to book uh, tickets for any of those events, 
do uh, go to just just type in uh, Cloud Hill. Remember to put the e in cloud. Uh, yes, yes, yes. One of the things about Cloud Hill is that it is a um, garden that looks really good in January and February. Yeah. You know, some of the botanic gardens actually comes up best at that time, whereas my garden, by February, is just looking tired. Mm. It's a real skill, I think, to make your garden look fantastic in February in Mm. this country Mm. or in this state. Yes. Yes, it certainly is. Exactly. Um, um, Actually, speaking about Cloud Hill, there is um, um, moves afoot to have the Olinda Golf Course um, developed into a garden. Oh, you said it's not a move afoot. It's actually going to happen. It's happening. Yes. It's definitely yeah. happening. Yeah. The the um, thing that I'm really interested in is that that it abuts onto the Hamer um, Arboretum, Arboretum. Mm. and I understand that the Hamer Arboretum was mainly um, designed around fire retardant plants, mm. and I would love to see some extension of that work into the Alinda Golf Course. Because we're never going to have fires again in Victoria, are we? <laughs> and we need to learn a lot more about fire retardant plants, especially with our natives. Mm. Well, the other the other part is the although the um, the old golf course is going to be uh, be uh, developed into open space with um, uh, picnic areas, sports oval, parkland. Yes. Um, the rhododendron gardens is being expanded, and it's going to be rebadged as the Dandenong Ranges Botanic Gardens. Mm. And that's because the gardens actually feature a collection of 50,000 rare and exotic plants, mm. some of which are endangered. So, and it's, it's fantastic. Who's mm-hmm. going to look after it? Because Parks Victoria are not doing a good job of it at the moment. Well, once it's, once it's a botanic gardens, I presume they'll have to employ all fund it their properly. own staff and fund it properly. And mm. there is a lot of money being put into this. Because um, I, I went up a while ago and it was absolutely stunning because... Everything, all these huge rhododendron were in flower. Mm. But dear me, there was some mess. Mm. The, you know, that you could see that it was, but it was just understaffed and there mm. was weeds everywhere. And, and I know some of, we've got in the botanic gardens, we've got a very rare collection of Chinese plants, which a lot of which Terry, who's the gardener, collected herself from Western China. And she's been wanting, moving some of them up there because of climate change. It's just going to get harder and harder to keep some of those woodland plants going well mm. in the Melbourne Botanic Gardens because it's going to be low and it's hot. Yes. Mm. But, you know, that garden mm. needs to be better managed before it can take those sort of plants. Mm. Well, that's management is, it begins with the, des- the design, doesn't it? Yes, and it's... But, you know, so many things. I mean, you see it all the time that... Governments will give a big piece of money to get something going, but they won't fund the running costs. Yes. And a garden has to have gardeners. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it has to be run properly. It can't just. You, you, it's not like putting in a new toilet block. You can then no. walk away once it's built. But no. you, uh, and that's what happens continually. Yeah. And I mean, you know, when I started working at the Botanic Gardens, which was about 15 years ago, I started guiding there. Mm. It had twice as many gardeners as it's got now. Mm. Mm. It's just, a, it seems to be a natural thing for gardeners, people who run gardens, to cut down the gardeners. Mm. Mm. Which does seem rather counterproductive. But mm. there you go. Well, yeah. it was my observation too recently, uh, in the last couple of years, I went up there to see daffodils and there was a big display of daffodils at the rhododendron garden. Oh, yeah. 
and quite frankly, and I know there was volunteers involved, so I've got to be a bit careful what I say, but I thought the display left a lot to be desired. Mm. And you've got to work with volunteers in conjunction with staff, and that's one of the real key issues of keeping these things going, keeping the public interest and also maintaining it well so people will come back again because they felt it was really good. They wanted to see something and they bring visitors there. I went um, to the rhododendron gardener with a rose breeder from Cordy's in Germany, uh, Thomas Prohl, who has a neighbour that breeds rhododendrons. And Thomas has also dabbled in rhododendrons, so he wanted to go to the rhododendron garden. And quite honestly, he wasn't that impressed. Mm. It, it is beautiful when the roadies are all in flower. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, Stephen, I have a question for you. Uh-oh, yes. I have a rhododendron that predates me in my garden, and I've decided it's getting too big. How hard can I prune it? Hmm. Um, it depends on the road to <coughs> um, Could you, for hearing, pr- do the pruning there, folks? Went, that was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a slightly more complicated question than it might sound. But what you need to do with the rhododendron, if you're going to cut it, and you need to cut it hard, you need to know whether it holds more than one season's leaves on the plant at the same time. So when the new leaves mature, if it's still holding last year's leaves and maybe the leaves before, then you can cut the. Billio Adam. Cut into hardwood. Yeah, you can go right back. In in fact, I would recommend cutting it right back to a stump and starting it again. Uh, It's a bit late to do it this year. Uh, You really need to do, if you're going to prune rhododendrons right back to stumps, you're going to expose their roots to light and you're going to do all sorts of stuff. So you need to do it early enough in the season so the plant can respond before the heat sets in. Um, If, on the other hand, the rhododendron's new leaves mature and all the old leaves drop off, then don't, for God's sake, cut those because they just don't shoot again. Um, So it's only those rhododendrons that have multiple years of leaves on the plant, at least two, and then you can cut right back into hardwood. Um, And most rhododendrons fall into that category, but there are a few still lurking around out there, not that you see them very often now, because most of those that do shed their old leaves are in fact rather hard to propagate as well as hard to prune, and so they used to grow a lot of them by grafting, and of course you don't buy a grafted rhododendron these days from anywhere that I know of, um, unfortunately, because some of them are beautiful things. Uh, but there's too much work involved in the grafted ones and people won't pay the extra price for them and they figure if they can buy a rhododendron for 20 bucks, why should they pay 40 bucks for a grafted one? Uh, so a lot of those really rare, interesting grafted rhododendrons are disappearing. But because you've got an old one in your garden, it could just be one of them. It is absolutely covered in leaf yeah. all the way to the ground. Yeah. So yeah. I suspect it's got... Yeah, so just check and make sure it's got at least two years of leaves on it when the new leaves are mature, mm. um, uh, and then you should be fine. And you can cut back really hard. You might even have to prune before flowering if you're going to cut it back really hard so that you prune it early enough yes. in the season for yes. it to respond. Mm. So you, And you won't get flowers on them again for a, a while because they, they'll put in lots and lots of new growth uh, and they'll be trying to re-establish themselves. And the trick is to cut them low enough that you get new growth low. A lot of people cut them just high up thinking, oh, well, I don't want to prune it too hard. Uh, but then all the new shoots come from straight up there. So you end up with the, you can end up with bare legs behind and, and all the growth way up on the top. So mm. if you are pruning a rhododendron and, and it's one you think you can prune really hard, you need to prune it really hard. Right. So bring it back to a stump almost. Like that's what I did with, this was years ago in England, I did that with my lilac, I thought. Mm. Well, I'm just going to cut it down and see if it comes back. Mm. Came back beautifully. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. A lot of plants will respond really well, but that was that's my it, only proviso with rhododendrons. They're sort of the two groups, uh, and you've got to know which one you're working with if you're going to prune them really hard. So, 
Well, yeah. it's high time we invited our listeners to join us. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, do give us a call. The number is 94190155. We've got Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants, Virginia Haywood, who's a guide at uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Melbourne, and Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm, all in the studio this morning. So uh, do give us a call if you'd like to, uh, to join in, 94190155. Graham, let's uh, go to your roses. You brought in two roses this morning. Yeah, he's got the pink yes. one and the white one. He has. <laughs> <laughs> one of many, many, many different colours and new releases in, in the rose world. Um, the, what, the, a white rose that I brought in is um, the spirit of rural women. And okay. it's uh, um, part of a fundraiser of the Country Women's Association. Right. Which in those people that are in rural areas would be very aware of CWA, of course. They do a fantastic job of keeping communities mm. together. And um, it's a fundraiser for that. And it is a white rose and it's got a, a, a very interesting perfume. And I would describe the, the flower as a flower that would... Um, come up with a bud like a hybrid tea and then forms out into like a rosette um it's got around about 50 petals in it and um with that white color um it's a challenge to to um uh to keep the flowers in the garden or in a vase but it holds out in a vase very well because of all the petals Mm -hmm. and uh really quite a good rose bred by the by the um, Milan family the people that bred the famous peace rose Mm -hmm. and uh, quite a good rose and the name again? The Spirit of Rural Women. Okay. Bit of a long tag, but remember the spirit. They yeah, should have just called it CWA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. that might have been easier. <laughs> it might have been a lot easier. Yeah. And the pink one. Well, it's more a, a mauve where they've... they've um, yeah, it's sort of not quite pink when it's fully open, is no, it? No, the buds are very pink, but then it opens to a mauve. Well, it's... Yes. yes. Um, Pam, the name of this rose is... Soul Sister. Okay. And um, th- this colour is really quite... Um, uh, it's got a sepia tinge. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a better rose than the, the same colour rose, the Julius rose. Julius, was I was going to say, which, which was never a good rose, but it's got very similar colourings to yeah. it. Yeah, amazing colours. And um, what's the word? Parchment? Yes. Would you Antique. call it parchment? I'm, I'm asking the, the panel yes. here for their... Yes. Candid opinions. Because I think Julia's rose is a beautiful rose. Oh, the yeah. colour's but gorgeous. It, the colour is wonderful, but it's not an easy rose to grow. No. It grows better as a climber if Doesn't you're interested it? in Julia's rose. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. so it's a good climber, yes. but not such, such a good bush. Yes. Mm. It, as is the, the, the mauve rose angel face. Angel oh, face that's a bush. beautiful rose. It's a gorgeous thing, but it, the climber of angel face is much better than the bush. Okay. Yeah, okay. But that this rose soul sister, good presents for people um, at Christmas time to send um, uh, relations perhaps or even business um, acquaintances and that sort of thing. Okay. And they can certainly be packed up this time of the year and Diana sends them off. Diana's the, the chief... Packer? Uh, packer? Yeah, she's an old packer. <laughs> she, she did a apprenticeship. Not an L packer. No. <laughs> did an apprenticeship with, with packing things up when she was working in the um, Kilmore Bakery that her family had for about, oh, nearly 40 years. Mm. But um, you can see the um, strains of her early youth in, in the packing department. This year, my roses have been sending out shoots from underneath the graft more than yeah. any other time. Yes. They're just 
rose after rose after rose. It's mm-hmm. extraordinary. Mm. Um, I believe it has a lot to do with the, the amount of rain we've had mm, and I, I um, the response this year with roses and, and the water has been just phenomenal, mm. really phenomenal. They just love water and they love feed mm, mm. And th- because they're so productive. Well, there you go. There you go. All okay. Right. Well, we're going to our first caller and we have uh, Anna in Hawthorne. Good morning, Anna. Hi, panel. Um, I'm just ringing up maybe to spark a bit of conversation. Right. Um, the topic sort of sad plants. <laughs> I've been wandering around Melbourne and eating out and all that kind of thing and I've noticed planter boxes, table plants and the odd single plant outside businesses don't seem to get watered. They look really neglected and it sort of bothers me and I thought maybe we could put a plea out there water water your assets. Yes, well, uh, my local shop that's in front of my nursery, they have a couple of window boxes outside their shop and I regularly go into the shop and say to Brad, your cyclamen need a drink, Brad. (laughs) Or or in fact, you know, whatever it is that's in season that he's popped into the thing. So he just gets some potted colour and pop them in. Uh, And I guess, you know, when you're running businesses, unless it happens to be a nursery, wherein you're actually relying on the plants for your income, uh, they do tend to get sort of forgotten. And sometimes it would be better not to have them at all than to have them looking dreadful. Exactly. You know, so yes. I don't know why people think it's a good idea to put plants there and then not look after them because mm. it's but actually th- worse than not having them. But I think what we forget is that you can get away with it and get away with it and water it every second day or whatever and then suddenly we have a 35 degree or 40 degree day and it needs to be watered twice or three times yeah. in that day. And that's... And I suspect, you know, we did have that really hot week. Mm. I've had a visitor from Yorkshire and she arrived and there was snow sitting on her car at home mm. and she walked into 35 degrees and she yes. didn't know what had hit her. <laughs> and the plants are a bit the same. Yeah. We get those really hot... And people... My daughter refers to my pot plants as um, death row. Have you watered death row, Mum? Mm. <laughs> for exactly that reason. Yeah. But I do think people trying to run a cafe, I mean, it's frenetic. As soon as they open their doors, you know, everyone wants their morning cup of coffee and, and they just don't get a chance. And they, although they, they like the idea of having a bit of greenery on tables, it's welcoming and, yeah. you know. Um, yes, they, they, they put them there when they're setting up and then... Um, I've got one, that's it. <laughs> one in, uh, called Grub in Moore Street in Fitzroy and it has the most beautiful garden, mm. both inside and out. But it's the only one I can think of that is really successful. Well, it's also quite different if you happen to have a, a chef or a cook who, who is believes it. in growing produce to use in the, mm. in the cafe or mm. restaurant. That's a whole different ball game, and they tend to be gardeners. Yes, exactly. And they so they things. look after mm. things, yes. But and, yeah, no, look, Anna's right. It's, it's sad to see plants around that are not being cared for. And uh, I'm a great believer if it's not going to work, then you're better not to do it. Mm. Um, not that I would advocate plastic plants, <laughs> or ever. Pla- or plastic grass. Yeah, oh, God, that's... Plastic like, grass is so hot, I just mm. don't get it. No, I don't get it either. The only reason I could see you using it is if you did need a green swathe under a big tree and you couldn't get grass to grow at all, maybe I might sort of make an allowance for it. But no. I'd much rather just have mulch. Mulch or, or plant a plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yes, you I can never quite understand the, the mock grass thing. Mm. Um, put clivias or plectranthus there. Yes, or something. If, mm. we're, if we're looking at containers that people are growing things outside these restaurants and cafes and things, they need to investigate fully the... Um, Oops. Okay, we seem to have lost Anna, but uh, we'll go yeah. on. Go on. Well, um, actually, I did some work last night with... Um, 
sea salt and they put out a gel to keep the moisture in the pot he mix itself. Mm. And I carried out the work with about five different pots we had just to experiment, experiment to see how it goes. But you can get water storage granules that people can use in potting mixes. Mm. Well, you can mm. also get water well pots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you only need to top them up once a week. Yes, and yeah. I think that's the, the solution to yeah, it. Yeah, well, for a lot of people it is. I mean, you've just got to make life easier so that mm. you don't have to remember all exactly. these things if you're mm. running a very busy business. Exactly, um, yep. But, yes, it is sad when things aren't being looked after. I hate that. Mm. But the water well pots are, are well worth investigating. I oh, they are. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, they're a great idea. Yeah. Okay, if you'd like to join us this morning, uh, do give us a call. That number is 94190155. As I mentioned, we have Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants, Virginia Haywood from uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Melbourne uh, Guides, and also Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm in Clonbernane. So uh, do give us a call, 94190155. Stephen, let's start with one of your plants. All right. Uh, taking a plant at random, we'll go for this one. Not that that helps people out there. Um, I have here one of the more obscure Ceanothus, the Californian lilacs. Um, Ceanothus are well known in Australia for that one called Blue Pacific, which in fact wasn't its name to start with, but it was a catchy name and so they put a different name on it. And I can't even remember what the original cultivar name was. But it's a very big, rather overbearing, sort of mushroom-shaped shrub with dark green glossy foliage and it gets electric blue flowers when it's in flower in the spring. Uh, And it can be a very dominating plant when it's in flower. It's really hard to sort of use it in a garden, I think. Mm. Um, And in fact, I had a whole border in my garden at home that I planted up because my next door neighbour had a blue Pacific and I was trying to sort of tone it in with my garden. So I did sort of blues and yellows and things and then their blue Pacific died. (laughs) Uh, But anyhow... So much for the borrowed landscape. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, sometimes (laughs) it's not worth trying to use the borrowed (laughs) landscape. Uh, I've never been fond of that plant. I mean, you can't grow anything under it because it makes such a dense canopy and so it's sort of dark and dingy under underneath them as a rule. Um, and the, the shade of blue is just so incredibly intense that I find it a bit eye-aching. Mm. But there's no, lot... I disagree entirely. Oh, well, of course you would, Virginia, but that's <laughs> fine. You're allowed to because it would be in your garden, not in mine. Um, <laughs> but see, there are Ceanothus out there that are much more interesting in lots of ways. Now, the one I bought this morning is one called Ceanothus glory de Versailles, and it's a small deciduous shrub and in fact you treat it like a semi-herbaceous perennial you cut it back quite hard every winter it sends up uh, strong canes in the spring uh, it flowers on new wood and it's this most beautiful pale powder puff blue mm, powder uh, puff is a good description uh, the head on this one's quite small as it can get quite a bit bigger than this but this is only a baby plant in a six inch pot but it's the most delicate shade of blue uh, and you can mix it in with almost anything because it's such a soft shade you can use it with all sorts of other pastel colours in the garden and it doesn't sort of yell at you or anything whereas really electric blues have got to be used carefully because well you can only really use them with colours that have also got the same sort of depth of intensity mm-hmm. otherwise they just Different take thing. over so you've got to you've got to have brilliant yellows and you've got to have you know colors that really will hold their own against the really bright blues but uh glory de versailles is a lovely little ceanothus now they're they're californian so they're mediterranean style plants uh so they'll cope with our summer heat and dryness quite well once they're established um uh, they love the sun they like a good well-drained site uh they're not particularly fussy about soil types although obviously a well-drained site is important uh and 
You don't see a lot of ceanothus here, and Virginia and I were discussing this earlier today, uh, and part of the reason is that some of them are quite hard to propagate, so we don't actually have the range of ceanothus for sale here that we should because they are really useful plants. And it's one of the ones that... I don't think we've got it in our collection in Plant Trust, have we? No, we haven't got a Ceanothus collection, and it'd be lovely if somebody had a really representative collection of them out there. I might add, you couldn't hold a full collection, because there's far too many of them. Mm. Uh, there's hundreds of them in the wild, so there's a, a lot of different species, and there's a mass of hybrids out there like this Gloridiva side. There's so. some really beautiful ones in the Californian garden, in, um, in the Botanic Gardens, and it's really worth going to have a look at them, mm. ones I haven't seen anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. You see a lot of them in England, yeah. but I believe that they are carriers of sudden oak death. Oh, disease. That could means, well be the case, yeah. Which means, of course, that we'll never be able to import them again. No. So it makes it more important that we don't lose them here. Yeah, the ones we've already got, mm. we might as well I've, sort of look after. I've got a, a real little ground cover one, which mm. has got very, 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 very dark leaves and mm. a, quite a deep blue flower. I've got a feeling that's one that's got a name, something like Emily Brown or something like that, a sort of a, a woman's name cultivar. I've got that in the back of my mind. I'm probably mm. wrong, but it'll be something like that. And it's a very pretty little thing. Yeah. Makes a and nice I've, ground cover. And I've got middle-sized ones and big ones. I've mm. got them all over yeah. the garden. I think they're a beautiful thing. Oh, they are. Well, I think Gloria Although they're not very long-lived, are they? No, they're not. Uh, I mean, a lot of ceanothus will go on for sort of 10, 15, maybe 20 years, and then they start to get rather scruffy. And because a lot of the deciduous ones you can prune really hard, but most of the evergreen ones you can't go back into old wood. And so they do have a lifespan. But... I mean, if I get 10, 15 years out of something, it's better value than planting annuals. <laughs> um, so I don't actually mind that too much. And, and also, um, you know, after 10 or 15 years, that garden bed not, might need a refurbishment anyway. So if you see an oath is suddenly collapse and, uh, collapses and dies, well, you know, you've got a gap and you can sort of start reinventing the garden. When your garden, garden gets full, don't you love finding a gap? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so in general, they're not long, long-lived. But they do give great value. There's lots of shades of blue in them, but you can also get pink ceanothus. You can get white ceanothus. So there's a range of different colours in them. Uh, there are some deciduous, some evergreen, more evergreen than deciduous. And they do vary from ground covers up to small trees, actually. There's one called um, True Earthen Blue that can get to four or five metres quite easily. So, mm. you know, some of them can be quite substantial little trees. So, mm. yeah, so the Ceanothuses, and I think they're rather gorgeous, and I've fallen back in love with Gloria de Versailles. I grew it for years, and then uh, for some reason or another it disappeared. Possibly my stock plant died or whatever, and I just didn't notice that it was gone, and I sort of just it sort of completely went out of my head, and then I saw it on somebody's list, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I better have that again. <laughs> and, in fact, there's a darker blue one of the same style, which I haven't seen again, uh, that I used to have called Henry de Foss, uh, which was a lot... Exactly the same thing as this, except with a much deeper shade of blue flower. And there's one, a pink one, and it's Marie something or another, and I can't remember the, sur uh, the surname, uh, but there's a pink one in these deciduous ones as well. So, And one of the ones we have in the gardens is, you'd almost call it grey, yeah. and it's, it's quite big, and mm. I, I just love it. Mm. Fair so could you use some of that as a flower arrangement, Stephen? I don't know that it holds well as a cut flower. No. Um, I think it'll start to shed fairly quickly if you pick it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I've just got, I haven't actually done so myself, I haven't tried, but I just have this sense that it would shed. Okay. Um, so I don't know that it would be a good cut flower. Mm. But um, 
Yeah, I think the ceanothuses are underused, underutilised. And <laughs> Sue has just texted me. My ground cover one is called Blue Sapphire. Oh, is it? Oh, well, it's not Emily something <laughs> or another. I know there is one with a name something like that. Mm. So there you go. Oh, well, blue, uh, I really like Blue Sapphire because the leaf is just so dark. Yeah. So it, it gives the contrast in itself, even yes. when it's not in flower. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, good plant. Yep. Now, sticking to a blue theme, uh, I thought I should mention the what they sometimes call Burmese plumbago, uh, Ceratostigma wilmottianum, uh, which is a dwarf deciduous subshrub, again, that needs heavy pruning in the winter, so you cut it back to just stumps. Uh, and it starts flowering before Christmas. It has intensely blue flowers on it, and it will still be in flower in April, May. Uh, and at that point of the year, all its leaves go bright red and it'll still have blue flowers on it. Yes, it's gorgeous. It's just the most fabulous little plant and you don't see people use it enough. Uh, it'll only grow to probably in the old measurements about two feet tall, uh, especially if you're pruning it hard every winter. Uh, it seems to be comparatively shade tolerant, comparatively sun tolerant. Do you prune uh, it because of the frost? I would have thought it was frost tender. No, it's not, it's not particularly frost tender. Uh, no, I prune it back because it, it, a lot of the wood dies anyway and it gets scruffy looking and it becomes leggy. So if you prune it back hard, um, uh, even more so than you would say a lavender or something like that, uh, it just makes it into a nice bushy shrub every year. And uh, there's several different species out there. Uh, most of them are rather similar and they have similar coloured flowers um, and they're all little shrubs. So they're good front of border things, uh, tucking into sort of little crevices where you've got nothing else and uh, uh, I just love them I think they're great plants and they will cope with an incredibly wide range of conditions I wouldn't put them in the darkest shade you can find but apart from that they'll, they'll cope with semi-shade right through to full sun mm. um, I mean if they're watered and fed they'll grow even better than they would if they're left alone but they seem to cope quite well with minimal attention mm. um, I've got mine on the driveway yeah. so it really doesn't get much water and it's Gorgeous. Yeah, it is a great little plant. So Ceratostigma, and it more or less doesn't matter which species you get because they're all similar, and I'm not altogether sure that they're not muddled up here anyway. There's uh, a white one too, isn't there? Yeah, I think there is, but I've never bothered. I can't quite see the point in having a white thing when I can have a proper blue one. Mm. Um, uh, if you've got a really good blue flower, the white version always seems like second best to me for some reason. And a lot of whites are not very pure. No. No. That's the trouble, I think, with yeah. white, particularly in the harsh sun, sunshine we have. Yeah. You need a very, very pure white for the white to, yeah, to, to hold its own. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, so I like the blue ones, and, uh, and I think they're a plant that we should be looking at more. And they, you know, if you know what the old fashioned blue plumbago looks like, the flower does look like that. Except it's, not, it's bluer. Yeah, it's much bluer, mm. richer, darker blue, and it's not the great big bulky plant that normal plumbago grows into. Mm-hmm. So, Ceratostigma wilmottianum, there's one called Griffithii, and there's a couple of other species out there. Um, and as I said, it probably doesn't matter which one you end up with, they're, they're all rather similar. Mm. Graham, you've been uh, running some workshops on summer pruning and it might be um, a timely reminder for listeners. Um, how should they go about summer pruning? With, with the summer pruning, we had a seminar yesterday and we've got others coming up on our, on our net site for people to come to. Um, simply, summer pruning is, is the same sort of thing as they do at Flemington Racecourse. Um, 50 to 60 days before that, that big event, the, the Melbourne Cup, and other events through the year, it goes right through till May, uh, trim back in the old language around about um, um, a foot on each stem of the rose. Once the rose is finished, once the bloom is finished, and you get a flower back on there in 50 to 60 days. And that's what we're talking about. And also um, 
the important thing, and Stephen was talking about rhododendrons before, um, trim back um, as soon as the flower's finished and keep the leaves on the actual plant, as many leaves as you can on the plant, to shade it, especially in hot weather, mm. because roses do get sunburn, mm. and that's when fungus gets into the stems. Um, so they're the sort of things we talk about, and then we generally talk about rose care, like um, getting flowers to... Um, Come on the on the bush itself by using things like liquid seaweed and and natural fertilisers where you don't force the plant, you keep that good strong growth going. And then we talk about mulching and also simple ways of making compost. Um, there are quite a few, a few of the things that we we cover in the in our seminars. So it's up on your website. Yes, on the website, um, and uh, people can uh, just come along to that. That, that particular time that we have. Okay. Yeah. So you better give out the website address again. Pam, I haven't got it with me. Oh. <laughs> Maybe Diana can just, just remember, give us a call. Just remember Silky's Rose Farm and you'll get And you'll get yeah, there. Yeah, if you, get, if you yeah. tap in Silky's Rose Farm, it'll you'll get it on the website, yes. I'm sure. Yeah. And, and it's not spelt with a Y. It's spelt no. with an I-E. Mm. Yes. Silky's Rose Farm. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Um I must remind listeners, if you'd like to join us, we'd love to uh, hear from you. We're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. So that number is 94190155, Stephen, it's high time we... Uh, oh, I know yes. we've been talking travel a little yeah, bit this yeah. morning, um, but it's high time we mentioned um, the trip you're going on next year. Yes, yes, and we've got spaces. And, 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 with and a bit and, of luck, I'm coming yes, too. Yes, yes, and I think Pam's <laughs> coming too. Uh, and, um, yes, I'm really excited because I haven't done this tour before, so it's a new one with me, uh, and it's for Australian Studying Abroad, of course, the company that I always do my tours with. And as people are aware, I've done the north of France quite a few times, up into Normandy and the Loire Valley. But this year I'm doing um, the south of France, so we're going to the Côte d'Azur and Provence, and uh, we're going to visit landscapes and gardens, and we're going to go to art galleries and uh, it's I think going to be stunning and it'll be in the spring so it's um, the 6th of May through to the 26th of May um, and so we'll see wildflowers in the south of France, we'll be going out into the natural surroundings to look at wildflowers um, and uh, we've got a wee boat trip as well uh, it's going to be stunning and you'll have to eat good food and drink good wine. And Which would be really hard to Yeah, cope. I don't know how anybody <laughs> will cope with it so if anybody's interested in joining us, I know there is space on our tour still at the moment um, probably the best thing to do is to contact Australian Studying Abroad Direct and you can go into their website and you, you, uh, if you type in my name in their website it will bring up my tours uh, so they'll have the full itinerary in there uh, I've got copies of the full itinerary up at my nursery if people were interested well, you can, want... you can just download yeah, it you can print download it off it. from the website yeah. Yeah. and uh, it looks to me like it's going to be a fantastic trip we get into quite a number of private gardens that you wouldn't be able to do on your own if you were travelling that's, that's the exciting bit I yeah. think I think it always is with the these tours. I mean, there's a downside to tours because you have to go with other people. <laughs> but the upside of tours is the fact that because you're going as a group, you can often get access to places that you wouldn't do as a person on your own. But from Madagascar, I've yeah. got two friends from that. 
Oh, yeah. That I didn't know before. Yeah. And, and, and I still yeah. see them, and, I re- and it's over a year later. Yeah. And I, and I really like yeah. them. And that's part of the fun of it, too, because you can meet really lovely people mm. uh, that you can bond with and you've got something in common with. And, in fact, if you're travelling on your own with a tour and you meet friends and make friends on the tour, they're actually the people you can talk about the trip with because most of your family members will mm-hmm. glaze over as soon as you say, would you like to see the pictures? Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll listen to you for five minutes and then they've had enough. And they've had more than enough. Enough. Yeah, so you know, so your family members and, and, and close friends back home aren't necessarily the ones that are going to engage with you about your trip. So it's really lovely to have some people that travelled with you that, you know, if you're chatting on the phone, you can say, oh, wasn't it fantastic when we saw that or when we got to there or, or whatever. And you, and you also learn some skills on shutting up and coping with the ones that you don't like on the tour. Yeah, well, that's right, exactly. <laughs> yes, when you're on tour, you've got to learn to cope with all sorts of different personalities. But generally speaking, uh, you're going to meet some nice people, even if you're travelling on your own. Look, they're going to be yeah. other gardeners, fellow yeah. gardeners, well, and exactly. they're nice people. Yeah, well, that's the other thing about yeah. sort of garden-oriented tours is that's that right. you do tend to get people who have like interests. So exactly. you're likely to bond with those people more than you would with a disparate group of people who mm. don't have anything in common. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, so I I think it should be a great tour. I think it'd be um, rather wonderful if we can get some more 3CR listeners to come no, along with fun. us. Wouldn't yeah, it be it fun? Would, it would be fun. Yeah, yeah so, it'd be great. And I always love going on a tour where I've got... Um, friends or even acquaintances who've gone on tour with me because you've already got a bit of shared history with some of those people. That's so right. it's really nice when you've got somebody that you, you know reasonably well that's going on tour with you, unless, of course, it's somebody that you didn't really want to book. But anyway, <laughs> that's, that's something else altogether. But, um, yeah, so Provence... Uh, the Côte d'Azur, um, all through that part of the world, 21 days. Uh, we'll be staying in, in fantastic hotels. Um, the south of France has some magnificent places to stay, so I think they're pretty well all five-star we're staying at. And um, uh, we're getting access to some amazing properties to go and have a look around gardens. Mm. We're even going into one or two. You're not allowed to take pictures in. Whoa. Oh, you know, so that's ha- that's how s- sort of special, special. some mm, of these places very are. Very special, uh, yes. But, of course, you're always taking pictures with your head. Exactly. Uh, and, in fact, I get annoyed with people who spend their whole time behind the camera lens and forget to actually look. Uh, Craig and I were at the uh, Fitzy in, in um, Florence and we watched this man walk around the different galleries within the Fitzy taking selfies of himself in front of pictures and not oh. once did he look at one of the pictures mm. directly. Not once. Mm. He went around the whole of the Uffizi taking pictures of himself virtually in front of every, every image, but he didn't look at any mm. of the pictures. What I absolutely loved about when we went to Normandy in the Loire mm. Valley was the fact that a lot of the gardens we went into had seats in the gardens. Yeah. And, and I love to just sit yeah. and actually take in the garden. And just listen mm. and, and look around you and, and enjoy the ambience. Yeah. And it's, Stunning. And most of the time you're in the garden with just your group. Yes. So you're not taking in the ambience of the crowds at Giverny or uh, oh, what right. have you. You know, yes. So some of those big places you go, all you look at is more people sometimes. Yes. Um, Stephen, for people who have never been on a tour, mm. roughly what does it cost to go on oh, a tour? Oh, well, a tour like this will cost you around about $10,900, so about $11,000. I've got the price here somewhere. I'm sure I have. Uh, we, oh, here we go. Um yeah, twin share, $11,180, uh, but that is excluding airfares. And it does sound like a lot of money, but it's 21 days. You're staying in the best of places. It includes quite a lot of your meals. It includes all your entry fees and what have you for wherever you're going and, of course, all your moving around and travelling and stuff. Um, and it is 
a very special tour, so you're not actually, I don't know, you're not doing the things that you could do on your own. No, that's the point. Uh, So you're going places that you wouldn't ordinarily get into, uh, and I think all those things count. Mm. Um, Whether I'm actually an asset is another thing, of course. (laughs) uh, But, yes, you'll be travelling with myself and my partner Craig, who manages tours very well and looks after people very well and makes sure that everybody's in the right place and the porters are tipped and all the things that need to be done. So he does all of the nuts and boltsy stuff. Uh, And I hopefully answer all your gardening questions as we go around. And when we do go to some of the galleries and things, which I can't pretend I know uh, everything there is to know about art. In fact, I know very little about art in some ways. I'm one of those people who knows what he likes. Um, but other than that, I don't know a lot. But we, in the art galleries and things, we'll either have local guides that will speak good English who will take us around and show us the highlights and explain some of the artworks and things. Or in some cases, we'll have the, um, the sort of whisperer sets where you wander around and you just press a button when you get into and each room. And you get room. to your guided audio yeah, tour. Yeah, and, and, and it tells you all about mm. it. And so you get to... You get some fairly in-depth information that mm. way. So, so what I can't tell you about, you'll have other assets there that will tell you about. Mm. So, um, so it'll be a really good um, educational tour. Australian studying abroad, by the very name, uh, suggests that you're not just going to have a hoot. You're going to actually try and learn something as well. Exactly. So you get that added advantage of having somebody with you that might have knowledge about certain things that you wouldn't have. Mm. Um, and... Uh, you know, certainly if we're wandering around the gardens and you want to know what something is, there's a good chance I'll know. So um, uh, I think it will be a really good tour. I wouldn't leave the um, time too long before you make inquiries if you're interested in going. Um, I know we've got spaces at the moment, but these things can book out really quickly. And, of course, we do need to get a critical number booked for the tour to go ahead. So it would be nice to have people already sort of locked in and we know where we're going and, and it's all sorted. Um, and the tour numbers are generally limited to sort of the mid-20s. So we don't take a bus it's load a good of size. 35 people. Yeah. No, 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 um, it's a good size. Yeah, so, you know, so mid-20s is the most. Uh, I think we have to get about 14 or 15 for it to be a goer uh, so that it pays its way. Um, um, and if we get past that number, it'll go. So, you know, you could end up on a tour only with 14 or 15 people, which... Which be would quite, be delightful. Yeah, it can be really nice. But yeah. certainly at 20, I've generally got most people's names in my head before the end of the tour. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what was the date of that tour again? Uh, the 6th of May, uh, we, we meet uh, in France. So you'll obviously have to leave home the day before if you're going. And I might add, ASA is really helpful. If you want them to do your bookings for you, they can. And if you wanted to go somewhere first, they can book for you to send you off somewhere else or or if you want to go on afterwards to something else. Uh, I mean, when we Australians end up in the other side of the world, it's sometimes quite nice to take advantage of the fact you're already there and move on to something else. I know some people who have actually booked on Australian studying abroad tours and then they've spent a few days somewhere and then linked on to the next one, yes. uh, going somewhere you else. You can combine them. Yeah, you can combine cases. tours yep. and things like that as well. So uh, there's lots of options for mm. people. We should also mention that it doesn't start from Paris. It no. starts from a little town just out of Nice. Yes, yes. So, so you yeah. do have to make your way to Nice Airport and then get to this little township. Yeah, yeah, which is sort of nice in a way. It's lovely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't mind going through Paris. I've always loved Paris, but um, it's nice to do something a little different. Absolutely. But anyhow, ASA is very helpful. They would... They uh, can sort everything. Oh, they can sort everything. Having said that, if you're one of those canny shoppers who goes in and looks for good buys on the internet and all that sort of thing for travel... 
Well, you can do all that yourself as long as you end up in the right place at the right time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's the main thing you've got to deal with. So Australians studying abroad, and it's the uh, arts and gardens of the Cote du Jour, etc. Um, and we'd love to have you on board. So Brilliant. Yeah, please yep. join in, and, and I'm looking forward to Pam and Cordell coming. That will be great fun. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't wait. It's got to go ahead. Please, yes, everyone. Yes, yes, yes. Enough people book, please. <laughs> yes. We want it to go ahead. Okay, we must go to, uh, let me see, we have uh, Hugh from the Yarra Valley. Good morning, Hugh. Yes, uh, good morning, panel, and uh, uh, good morning, Victoria. Um, I'm having serious problems with my roses. Um, I had an industrial-type accident, and um, during that time, there were two shipments of roses uh, around July and, and, and August. But the carer and the hospital, of course, they didn't care about my incoming mail. And for a long time, till about November, um, the um, roses were still in the plastic bag as they, oh, were, pa- no. as they were packed by the companies. <sighs> now, most of the roses are the Corps type, uh, K-O-R-D-E-S. And um, anyway... When I discovered that, they were sort of a little bit shaded. The plastic bags were shaded in, in, through the overgrowing um, uh, blackberries. And anyway, I, I took them out of the plastic bags and, 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 and drowned them for 24 hours in clear water without sea salt or anything like that, just plain water. And I, uh, and I potted them, etc. And I have now around 50... Uh, roses staring at me, all yellow leaves. Um, they wanted to shoot um, and, and, and grow uh, leaves in these plastic bags. Anyway, so what happens is um, I have now put these roses in, in pots. Now my question number A is, do I leave them a little bit in the shade or do I leave them in full sun? And uh, then I, the question is of fertilizing. Shall I give it a little bit of um, sea salt? Not, yes. N- n- not, not, uh, I, I wish to correct that. Uh, shall I give them s- seaweed as distinct from sea salt? Shall I give them sea salt? Um, I didn't know what to do, and I had a bit of complete fertilizer, and sparingly I put a little bit of... Um, complete fertilizer over it and um, that is number one and the other thing is um, I have uh, uh, from last year I have Raubritter roses uh, about 10 of them and they were supposed to um, cascading down an embankment a deep embankment the, fair, <laughs> the very embankment I fell down on anyway so um, uh, shall I and these these uh, roses, they have very spindlish type uh, t- twigs after um, of science, right? And the science are now um, three, four, five um, feet long, and I want to trim them down to about a foot and a half, so that they're not so spindlish, and that they're a bit stronger after the graft. So this. Um, that is so. That is the rope from last year, 
Um, and the other one is the other question of major importance. Hang on, hang on, Hugh. Let us deal with the first two. Yeah, because we'll forget what you started with if we don't get those ones out of the way. So mm. let's start with um, uh, Graham talking about the roses that were left in plastic bags. Well, you, you've got those roses now in pots, Hugh. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Um, well, at this time of the year, you'll need to put them so that they will get sunlight, but I would say that you're best getting the sunlight from the east, okay, in so the morning. Give them morning sun. Morning sun. They'll need it, still, at le- le- still need at least four hours of sun and give them liquid seaweed in the pots yes. once a week. Once a week only? Yes. And no fertiliser? No fertiliser at all. Okay, because I, I I did it and I wasn't very happy doing it, but uh, I thought I better do something, you know. Well, basic, uh, your basic rule, Hugh, is never fertilise a sick plant. Yes. Young lady, when you're in hospital and you're sick, I'm not going to feed you because you say you don't feed sick patients. <laughs> well, actually, you give them a pill to make them better, mm-hmm. and that's what the sea soul does. Yeah, that's, it, it works as a tonic for them, mm. Hugh. It's not a feed, it's a tonic. Mm. Okay, okay. Okay. And now the, and then the rope with the ones from last year. Yes. uh, They were supposed to be cascading. Right. And, um, now I learned they're not cascading at all, it's merely a ground cover rose. Right. So, um, shall I just stick some bamboo sticks next to them and then just clip off after about, say, a foot and a half or two feet? Yes. And to keep, keep them going, they'll need liquid seaweed as well. Okay. And then I have a question of importance to me. I found a lot of Hermantus. Now, Hermantus actually is um, a hemos, I think it's Greek meaning blood, something like that. So Blood but, lily. Yes. But uh, I think the ones I ha- have in question at the moment is Hermantus alba. Mm-hmm. which is like the, the white shaving brush. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, where do I keep those in the shade? Yes. yes. Yeah, don't put them out in full sun. They grow underneath shrubs, although they come from semi-desert conditions. Um, they grow underneath the canopy of larger shrubs and trees, so you need to keep them in the shade, otherwise the foliage will burn and die off too early and the bulbs won't feed themselves properly. Okay, so that problem is that. And then is... Um, um, I found from the lens department a garland, and that bottle had been missing for a long, long time, and I can't read the instructions anymore. And garlon is um, 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 it's another form of of um, uh, you know Roundup. Roundup. It's more poisonous than Roundup. But anyway, I have this. Garland, and I'm not quite sure. I want to spray the, the, the blackberries. It is good for blackberries. Mm. It's the only thing I would use it for because it's not a desirable poison. Yeah. Now, if I take, for example, the cap of, a, of an old seesaw uh, bottle um, and fill that with garland... Um, no, you'll have to look up what the ratio is. Yeah, and I can't read it. No, but I would go into the internet and find it. I, I have a radio and I have a telephone. Well, I would talk to a friend who can go into the internet for you and find or out. Or otherwi- yeah. otherwise ring up um, a Landmark in Wandon. They'll be able to tell you. 
Landmark in Wandon. You know, as you drive through Wandon, if there's a set of shops behind the highway, Landmark is there. Is that the company that used to be in Mount Evelyn? Well, I don't care. They are now in Wandon. Okay. Um, Nobody would happen to have their telephone Mm, number? Not off the top of our heads, no. But you should be able to, with um, directory assistance, get it for you. Uh, They don't even give you a telephone anymore. Mm. They're very nasty. But you must drive down the highway, Hugh. Okay. Um, Well, that is just... Just about all. Yeah, because I certainly wouldn't spray chemicals around unless I knew how much I needed to spray because you're putting down a poison. If you don't put down enough, you're not going to kill the blackberries. And if you put down too much, you might cause other problems. Mm. So you really need to do that. All right. Okay, we've got to go. Thank you. Bye. 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 You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We rely on the financial support of listeners like yourself to keep going. If you'd like to support diverse voices on your radio, go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Well, uh, I'm delighted to say that uh, online we have David Wilkinson. Now, David is a practising architect with a certificate in gardening from the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew, London. Um, He's been president of the Friends of the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, as well as the Victorian uh, Committee Chair of Open Gardens Australia. Good morning, David. Good morning. Uh, Thank you for speaking with us this morning. And, uh, of course, we're talking to you this morning because um, you've just had released um, a wonderful book called Grand Melbourne Gardens. Now, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Um, and uh, I see, firstly, um, there is a foreword in the book by Professor Tim Entwistle. I presume that's your Botanic Gardens connection. Yes, yes. He, uh, Tim's been wonderful. He's, um, as from day one, which is two years ago now, he has been so supportive of this uh, project. And I think he's written a, a, a lovely piece about Melbourne and gardens and how we were the Garden State and... Um, and what pleasure the gardening gives um, here in our city. Mm. Now, the book gives the reader a glimpse of um, many inspirational Melbourne gardens, often, um, as you mentioned, normally hidden behind um, high fences, and they include a mix of public and privately owned gardens. Um, I know listeners will be familiar with some of them, but others um, I certainly hadn't heard of, so you've got a real mix in there. How did you come to choose which gardens you were going to include in the book? Well, um, that's a very good question. <laughs> As you know, we, it's only really the 44 gardens were edited down from 55. Right. Um, for instance, I just love Melbourne's floral clock, but um, our editor felt that everyone can see the floral clock, but there should be more private and tantalising gardens that people can't necessarily get into. And... Um, my knowledge, I suppose, of um, Open Gardens Australia and the Friends of the Botanic Gardens led me to knowing a lot of Melbourne gardens, and I really went for ones that I felt gave inspiration and motivation from their creators. So they are, I have to say, it's a very subjective list. Mm-hmm. It's people I know, it's people I like gardening with, and I like the way they garden. But it, when you walk into their gardens, their, their personality, their soul 
is reflected in what they've created. And so you're right, they go from a little balcony in Camberwell right through, well, to Raheen, Cranlana, Kunak, all the big guns of, of, South, of Tarak, and then Plantsman's Gardens, you know, which are the size of a double garage. Um, now, I think you mentioned two years. Is that how long it's taken from concept to publication? Yes. Kim Baker, the photographer, um, had this idea that no one has really done Melbourne Gardens. That's not the Mornington Peninsula. That's not Mount Macedon. It's just with 50 k's around the CBD. So it's just Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And um, he has done Remarkable Trees of Australia, and he's done books on golf courses, and he's done... Now, two books on big property, no, what are they called? Uh, biggest, uh, grand estates, I think it's called, of the um, Western District. And um, so we started about two years ago, but very much part-time, because we both work on other projects. So have, have you worked with Kim before in the no, past? No, no, no but we, um, Thames and Hudson have sent this project back to China for a reprint. We're very excited. It's been selling very fast. Well done. (laughs) And uh, it's a pity because I think we might miss the um, Christmas rush, but there are still plenty in the bookshops. Uh, But the second batch will arrive in about five weeks, just after Christmas, mid, mid, uh, I think it's to be mid-January. People and we're hoping to do another book for them, which, as you know, yeah. we've only just tipped the iceberg, got the tip of the iceberg with the number of gardens. Oh, yes, I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure. We People can always put a, a pledge in a card. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then they'll get it, to, they've got something to look forward to in January. That's a very good notion. I'll put that to the bookshop. Yes, yes, yes. good idea. <laughs> yes. Now, listen, I'm, I'm intrigued by your choice of classifications for the groupings of the gardens. Yes. So um, you've got stately gardens, architectural gardens, romantic gardens, private paradises, yeah. historic gardens, and plant connoisseurs' gardens. So that's 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 quite an amazing mix. In with some of those classifications, I think I'd be scratching my head as to which one to to put the garden into. We we certainly were. Yes, you're absolutely right. But on the other hand, I didn't want. I have to say that was our, our Neil Conning's idea, who was okay. our Marvel's editor. I just didn't want Chapter 1, you know, um, Royal Botanic Gardens, Chapter 2, uh, The King's Domain. You know, I, I wanted somehow to group them so that people's interests were satisfied. I mean, some people don't like very formal gardens and other people love, um, mm. love them. So I, I wanted to try and get a... A, a way people could just let's face it it's an easy read it's it's a it's an attractive coffee table it's hardly a sort of horticultural tome or a botanical encyclopedia it's more just something to inspire and motivate people to get out there and create a lovely garden which and, is why um, the photography is such an integral part of the book because yeah and, and the captions too you know yes. you, i think people go to the photography then they think, oh, wow, what's that? And, they read the, and then maybe they come to my text at the end. Yes. <laughs> You're putting yourself down, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's, you know, it, 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 well, that's exactly what it was meant to be. It was meant to be a pleasure to pick up and mm. have a look at. Mm. Now, you do manage to cover um, not only um, very large gardens, um, but you do manage to cover um, a balcony garden, um, a little courtyard garden, um, and I noticed that you've had um, a press release in our local paper this week 
um, on the, the North uh, Courtyard that Bill Henson um, owns. So yes. well done for that. A full double um, spread page oh. in our local magazine this week. Good Lord, I haven't seen that. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> well, no, um, uh, uh, Thames and Hudson have done a fantastic job uh, you know, pushing publicity. Uh, Michelle Brasington probably organised that. And uh, look, she, she lets me know by email, but I don't, I don't um, keep up with it all. But that, yes, Bill's been, Bill and Louise have been very supportive, and it is an absolute, um, it is, it's, a, it's a mystery wonderland, that garden. It's, it's, um, it's in an old um, factory, and he just ripped the roof off this great big space, which had four brick walls and not much else, and he's lifted in huge um, uh, palm trees and rocks and, and <laughs> it's just it's just um, well you can imagine he's such a creative artist yeah and she, she is too and so they've had this and it's just he rakes it every morning the gravel he thinks is very serious and it ends up looking like a Kyoto garden in Japan yeah. it's just beautiful <laughs> absolutely beautiful it's, it, it's a real oasis looking yeah. at the photographs it's fantastic oh it's a great well that actually that wall in that photograph is huge black curtains that the other three walls are his studio if you know what I mean. Okay. So he has those that view all day when he's working on his photography. Mm. Now the other uh, a couple of other gardens really stood out to me. Um, one which I'm, I must get you to tell listeners about is um, Tintern because um, that uh, came from, well the house was built from prefabricated cast iron panels that came out from Scotland as, as ballast. Yeah, it's a fascinating history, that one. It, it, it came, as you say, out um, as the ballast in an old sailing ship and um, is right slap bang in the middle of Tarak and it's got a high wall all the way around it and Tintern Avenue goes around it. It was a very big estate, as you can see, by that um, watercolour, which I think is 1867, um, by Tibbets. And um, it, 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 it is, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderland. It's, um, Vanessa Kennedy and Malcolm have been there um, and looked after the garden now for a long time. And the, the, you just walk into a wonderland. It, it's otherworldliness. How's that? Well, I, I can see exactly why you classified it under romantic gardens because it is just beautifully romantic. Yeah. Yeah, and... Um, in, inside it is as romantic as outside but she's been able to create a view into the garden from every every window and mm. they it, it's an ex, it's, it, well it's it's pretty wondrous that melbourne can still accommodate a garden um such as that right slap bang in, in the middle of 3142 absolutely yeah, yeah. The, the the other garden that totally intrigued me as well it's very striking is uh clendon court yeah well that's that's um part of that Sid and Fiona Meyer who are the son and daughter-in-law of uh, Bales and Sarah who are next door so it's sort of part of Cranlana but it was split off and um, it's a very big garden Cranlana it's also in the book um, and she's a very stylish operator that's Fiona yes <laughs> she loves things um, as you well, it's a perfect example of an architectural garden, isn't it? It's, it's well, very it is. stylish. It's no flowers, just just forms and and shapes and um, and um, hedges. Mm. And she seems to have a real affinity with pears. With who? Pears. 
Pear trees. Oh, yeah, 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 the, the espaliered pears. The espaliered pears along the wall look fantastic, but then she's also got the standard Manchurian pears. Yeah, well, they're the absolutely... Entryway. Yeah, and at night, that shot we did at night. Yes. Um, it, it's really spectacular. And even though it's used for cars, it really could be part of the garden, couldn't it? I mean, it doesn't look like a driveway at all. Oh, not at all. And the green pears against the brown painted wall um, are quite... Stunning, aren't they? Mm, absolutely. And, and that shot of the espaliered pears reminded me that um, when I uh, was shown over Raheen quite a few years ago now, they had a very, very similar idea, uh, but they had espaliered figs running along a wall. Do they still have the, the yes, figs there? Yes, the, the espaliered figs are still there. And then um, Paula Fox has got that incredible espaliered cotoneaster on her front wall done in diamonds which diamond mm. shapes and Sarah Guest of course in you know just near the MCG has got taken her 30 years but she's espaliered a um, Sasanqua Camellia which, which looks is incredible absolutely spectacular isn't it it that, is spectacular yeah. and Sir, Sarah's is one of those gardens it's a pocket handkerchief too isn't it it's a tiny little garden in Jollymont tiny uh, yeah uh, but you know when you do something like that in a small space it becomes an amazing feature yeah, well, I, I, I um, when we were looking at titles, I, I just wanted Melbourne Gardens, and then it was um, Kirsten Abbott, our editor at, at Sep Thames and Hudson, who wanted to add the grand because she, um, I didn't think they were all grand. For instance, Sarah, Sarah's isn't, but she ended up by saying a celebration. This book is a celebration of gardens, new and old, small and large, all grand mm. in their horticultural ambitions and inspirations. Yes. In other words. They're all grand in that everybody's tried their hardest to make a really bold garden statement, mm. and, and they've achieved it. Mm. Now, I think you've hinted at the fact that there might be a sequel to this. Well, <laughs> let's keep our fingers crossed. Okay. Let's, um, let's, let's get this one off and away. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the launch has been pretty good, though, if you've already gone for a second print run. Yeah, yeah, well... Um, no, no um, we've had a wonderful launch at the Avenue Bookshop, which their new one in um, Richmond. We've had a launch at the Friends of the Botanic Gardens. Um, we've had a launch at Merrick's North Store down on the Mornington Peninsula, and we've got one at Cranlana on Wednesday. Just a little one, a little coffee in the garden. But I asked all the gardeners um, from the Botanic Gardens to see um, Cranlana, which isn't op- open very often. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, then the new year kicks off with a few... But um, I've, we've been, you know, I think you've got to, you've got to sing for your supper with these, <laughs> these <laughs> books. <laughs> you've got to get them moving. That's right. They can't be sitting in the warehouse. No, no. And, and so, uh, yes, it has been successful. Thank you. And um, as you know, just the tip of the iceberg. That's Melbourne fantastic. is full of the most fabulous gardens. Yeah, the only problem is we can't get into all of them to see because it makes us want to go and visit them all. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's when you have to... You know, what is it? You've got to know people. <laughs> <laughs> you're pulling a few favours and things, I think. <laughs> yeah, you've got to... It, it, have you ever... I mean, it is... It, it, they say it's like giving birth, um, you know, publishing a book. And I, I can believe it. You've got to charm the people. You've got to organise the photo shoot. And then you get it all ready. And it pours with rain. And then you've got to come back. And then you've got to say, I'm sorry. And That's right. Oh, it goes on forever. Anyway, we, we made it. It's a bit of a miracle. Well, absolutely. Congratulations on the book, David. It, it is really... Um, Truly um, a beautiful book to, um, 
to have lying around your house for people to pick up and question that hasn't been asked though what's that how much ah i was about to come to all of that the nitty gritty details of course we should uh, say that uh, the full title is grand melbourne gardens yeah. it is by david wilkinson and kimball baker who's the photographer uh, now it's published by thames and hudson australia uh, recommended retail price is $70, so, um, and hopefully it's still around in quite a few bookshops, but... Oh, it is. No, it certainly is. And, it's, and it, um, the, I think it, it, it's actually sixty nine ninety five. but you know what's happened to five cents these days? Well, that's right. <laughs> so, that's yeah. exactly right. Rounded up at 70, and it, it is certainly... I don't, I, want, I don't want to paint the picture that they aren't available, because they certainly are. Yep. But what I can say is that there are no more left at... Alliance Services, Alliance Distribution Services in Sydney, which received them from China. Okay. So they've all gone. So what is left is in the bookshops Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide. But there will be more on the way as well. There are more on the way, uh, well, in mid-January. Yes, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking to us this morning, David. And again, congratulations on the book. Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you for being so supportive. Okay. Bye. 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 Now, we do actually have one copy of the book available um, as a supporter segment. So, and this one is uh, right here in our hot little hands. So, definitely got yeah, one want, available for us. I want Fermi to buy it so that I can take it home for him and read it before <laughs> he gets it like I normally do. <laughs> Are you out there, Fermi? <laughs> well, as I say, we do have one copy available uh, to support uh, 3CR and The Gardening Show. If you'd like to jump on the phone and grab this copy for $70, it can be yours. If you want it posted, we do have to add another $10 onto it. So, uh, uh, But normally uh, you could pick it up here from 3CR during uh, the week, during office hours. Uh, but if you'd like to grab that one copy, it is... Um, Beautiful book to look at, and it will inspire you on some of these amazing Melbourne gardens. So just ring now on nine four one nine zero one double five. That's nine four one nine zero one double five. Grand Melbourne Gardens uh, by David Wilkinson and Kimball Baker. Okay, well, uh, if listeners would like to uh, ask a question before we have to finish this morning. Do give us a call. Again, that number, 94190155. Stephen, we've got a couple of plants we haven't dealt yes, with. Yes, we have. And uh, one that I've been, or a group of plants that I've been enjoying in my garden for some years now, uh, is a genus called Sonchus. Um, now, Sonchus has a mixed blessing, is a mixed blessing genus, because the milk thistle is a Sonchus. Um, that explains the leaf. Yeah, but having said that, uh, the Canary Islands has taken Sonchus to extreme levels. So they're basically giant milk thistles on steroids. <laughs> um, the one I bought in this morning is Sonchus, funnily enough, canariensis. So, uh, and it has finely cut leaves, sort of with a ferny. Uh, look to them. Uh, it's a shrub. Uh, it'll grow to about three metres. Uh, if it gets too hot and dry in the summer, it'll just shed all its leaves and you end up with something that looks like a slightly wane frangipani plant because it has quite thick, heavy stems uh, and its leaves will all just drop off. Okay. Uh, and then when the weather cools down and it gets some moisture, its leaves will come back again. Uh, 
it's fairly upright and doesn't have a lot of branches, so it's, it's a see-through shrub, uh, which I find quite useful because you can bring them forward in a border and things and you can see through them and around them because not everything in a, in a garden should be thick, bushy and, and impenetrable. I um, love see-through plants. Yeah, well, I think the sonchuses are great for that very reason. They do get yellow milk thistle flowers on them, uh, which are slightly bigger than your average milk, milk, milk thistle and in quite large heads, so the flowers can actually be quite showy. Uh, they're normally spring flowering they're just finishing off in my garden now um, and there's a whole range of them um, I've got about four species in the garden at home from comparatively short ones up to sort of well easily three meter ones um, and they'll grow in semi-shade they'll grow through into full sun uh, they don't seem to be fussy about soil types uh, they do need good drainage yes, does that mean the say- seeds fly all over the garden not like you would expect being a milk thistle. I mean, no, I've that's got, what I was thinking. Yeah, I had uh, visions of hundreds of no, them. No, they don't seem well. Certainly in my garden, I get the occasional self-sown seedling that pops up. Yep. Uh, but if I want more of them, I collect the seed and raise them, and they certainly germinate easily enough from seed. Um, and uh, I don't think I've had a seedling of canariensis come up in the garden yet. Uh, I've had a couple of Sonchus palmensis from La Palma Island, uh, and I've had. Fruticosa, which gets quite large leaves, that does self-seed itself around my garden a wee bit. But they never seem to self-seed in such gay abandon that they're an issue. And sometimes they come up where you'd actually quite like something to come up. You know how things that self-seed themselves often plant themselves somewhere where it sort of works, and yet you probably wouldn't have thought to put something there? I had one that rotted off, which surprised me. I've got another one that Eddie gave me, which I've put in, and I'm hoping... Because I've got a few things that do this... 15 foot to a flower. Yeah. And I love them. Like I've got ferula in yeah. flower at the moment. It must be 20 foot to the flower. Yeah. Mm. And it's, you know, it just sits up there, this mass of yellow flowers. It looks gorgeous. And I've got the um, Montanoa. Yeah. Which flowers in autumn. And it grows at least 15 foot in a year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of these plants are amazing. I mean, this plant I bought in of Sonchus canariensis is this year's seedling. I put the seed in just before I went away to Madagascar. Um, so only two, two, three, no, uh, only the last few months. Oh, really? Yes. If that's done that, yes, well, there you go. Yeah, so, and the seedlings germinated within days, just like you would sort of half your vegetable seedlings. Uh, I had them pricked out into tubes within about three weeks, uh, and then I potted them up into these sort of six-inch size pots, uh, and put, uh, I grew them on in the greenhouse to start with, and I put them outside, and they've just romped away. And so they're all looking for a home now, because uh, <laughs> I've got lots of them. Um, the trouble when you raise seedlings is you often end up with far more than you think you're going to end up with, and then you can't bring yourself to discard any, so you pot everything up, yes. and then you suddenly realise that was a bad move. But anyhow, I've got a lot of lovely Sonchus canariensis to sell. Uh, it's not 100% frost hardy. Um, so in, in really frosty areas, I mean, places like Kyneton and Trentham and those sorts of areas, you might struggle to grow them and keep them alive through the winter. Um, but certainly around Melbourne and in my sheltered garden in Macedon where I do get some frost, but um, it doesn't seem to affect my sonchuses at all. Mm. So I think they're great plants and uh, very textural. Yeah. Your call was heard. <laughs> it has been answered. We're going to Fermi. Good, oh, good morning, morning, Fermi. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Fermi? That was very cheeky of Stephen. <laughs> uh, it's a good book, though, Fermi. Uh, I see. You've, you found out that you're, you're taking the book home with yeah, you. Yeah, th- well, I'm figuring that I'm taking it home with me. <laughs> <laughs> 
you can come and visit me in the Yarra Valley for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Oh, well, I thought I'd ring and wish everyone a happy Christmas. Oh, thank you. And um, I was going to raise a, a thing. Um, we just found out, and this is pertinent to Stephen because he's going to be doing his, uh, his request for seed from the AGS. Oh, yes. Uh, somebody alerted us to the fact that Bicon put a new alert on their um, website to say that now anybody importing seed has got to have um, either a phyto, a phytosanitary certificate, which I don't know how much it costs and has to be done at the end of the people sending the seed, yeah. or a, um, uh, I think there's another sort of test that they can do, which is usually done for vegetable seed like tomatoes and stuff like that, or they need a, a supplier's declaration. And the supplier's declaration just has to be something from the person sending the seed on their letterhead and signed by the supplier. So does the AG, is the AGS, AGS aware of this? The AGS and Scottish have been contacted, mm. the Scottish Rock Garden Club, because they're two of the ones we belong to, and they said, yes, we can comply with that, we can put a letter together. Because they usually, when they send seed to uh, to us here, they always print out the list of the the name of the the plant. Yeah, because they always send out their seeds in envelopes with numbers on, don't they? Well, they've, they've actually, I think Scottish, uh, one of them have just started doing the, the names as well. Oh, right. But the, the, what they, the, the supplies, the declaration has to have the, the full botanical name. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they can, they're complying with that. And I've just sent a, an email to, the, um, to someone in the North American Rock Garden Society and asked them if they can do the same. Oh dear, so, it just gets more and more complicated. Well, yeah, so we're, we're thinking, we had our meeting yesterday, sorry you couldn't get there Stephen, yeah. there was a, quite a bountiful... Uh, yes, I know, I missed out on all sorts of good plants, I know. I know, and we've also got a new member from um, uh, up north who, uh, well, somewhere, Tangamalanga I think it is, I can never remember the full name of it, and uh, he has been growing alp- uh, alpines only for a couple of years, but he had, he's bought seed from alplanes in... Um, America, so he had an amazing range of plants there. So well uh, you did miss out. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's very hard for me to take know, time off on a weekend. But anyhow, mm. yeah. So anyway, we um, we uh, sort of had a meeting and uh, resolved that the committee need to send a, a an a formal letter to sort of say, look, this is um, uh, you know, if they make things too difficult, the trouble is. If the, the more difficult people uh, that they make it for people to bring plants in legally, then what's going to happen is people are going to, it's going to try to bring them illegally. And yeah, that, exactly. Actually, they push people underground. Yeah, and and the, all that does is bring um, is uh, make things um, risky. Risky, and you can get people bringing in things that they shouldn't, and they can be things that um, uh, aren't properly clean, and so you could bring in contaminants and bugs and that sort of thing. So we really need to. Um, take a stand on that but um, I think we, we need to uh, put out to um, some of the other people who import seeds that they need to um, we need to stand up and say look this is you know if you make a change like this don't give us two weeks before the um, the uh, the because <laughs> we'd already most of us had already sent in our, our seed applications and um, and uh, the, uh, the Alpine Gardens, particularly, they are very quick. We often get ours before Christmas. So if somebody hadn't found this uh, alert, uh, we might have uh, 
Uh, yeah, getting well, all our seeds confiscated. Yeah, well, it would have happened, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yes. Oh, uh, well, there you go. The government's yeah. doing it yet again. Oh, dear. Anyhow. Well, anyway, Fermi, anyway. I'm, I take it that you have bought the book, so I'll take it home with me. <laughs> well, <laughs> and uh, we'll see each other, I assume, in due course. I think sometime. We'll give you a little bit of time to read it. Yeah, yeah. Look, <laughs> it is a coffee table book. I should be able to get through the text fairly quickly over, <laughs> over morning tea or coffee, and I promise not to put the cup on the book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least not a coffee cup. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Thanks, See you in the new year. Bye. Yes, bye. Although it is a coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we won't go there. Yeah. Um, next up, we have uh, Kim out in Reservoir. Good morning, Kim. Yeah, good morning, panel. Um, I've just got a question about my native lime. Yeah. Um, it's going okay. It's growing, and I get a little bit of... Um, fruit off it but I can't get my fruit to grow very big and it looks like something's eating it but I don't know what would be able to get in amongst the prickles so I guess I'm looking for something like a I don't know one of a better word a steroid to pump them up a little bit <laughs> well, I don't know that you need a steroid how long have you had your native lime um, tree I reckon it's two years now and it fruited last year and I'm just looking at it now and there's Last weekend, I reckon I had about six or seven little fruits on it, mm-hmm. and today I've only got two. I've got a really tiny green one and one that's just turning, um, just turning the brownie colour. So somebody's stealing it. Um, I don't. You, you couldn't steal it, I don't think, because you can't see it from the yard. No, I didn't mean um, a person. I meant. Oh no, I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they did. They did steal my concrete kangaroo a few years ago. So. <laughs> oh, how dare they? You know, such an iconic thing. Well, if the... you wish, you can get a fully lit up kangaroo for Christmas from Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, they, have you checked the ground underneath? Because they can have a tendency to drop early. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah I'm so just looking at... Yeah, I'm... There's a bit of leaf litter around, but I can't see any. Okay. Um, but I was just, it's also, I can't, I actually want to get them to grow a bit bigger. A bit bigger. Like, yeah. you know, the ones I see at the market are about the size of a finger. Can I say that it's only two years old? I was going to say that. I mean, mine didn't even fruit for the first couple of years. No. And, okay. And each year they do get bigger. Yeah. I think mine didn't fruit for at least three years. Yes. So oh, I think. It, I, th- I think it's yep. just that it's probably fruited fairly early in its life. Um, yep. Don't expect really big fruit this year. And, and okay. as I say, they will gradually increase in size over the next few years as it establishes itself more. I'd be very surprised if something is actually eating them. I've never, ever had that problem. Yeah. I couldn't see why a possum wouldn't. Well, a possum might, but I, I think the po- it's, because they are the very isn't, prickly and it's yeah, fragile. Yeah. I would have thought a possum trying to get at the fruit is it would just to break have, the plant yeah, it and would just collapse. Break the plant. Yeah. And well, what's what should I be fertilising it with? That's the um, uh, don't, don't, I don't really know much about it. Citrus fertiliser, and okay. remember it's native because it's but it's on a citrus rootstock, oh, not yeah. a native rootstock. They're it's grafted, on a citrus. Right. They're grafted, mm. so ah, um, okay. so you give it citrus food. All right. So, I've, so, yeah. I've never fed mine. Yeah. yeah, I put a little bit of dynamic lifter around. Would that have been okay? Um, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, in moderation, it won't do any yeah. harm. Mm. I, yeah. I give mine a little bit of citrus cow food, manure. and I give it a bit mm. of cow manure. Mm. Okay. At any particular time of the year? Um, I usually I usually do it spring and autumn. Yeah, okay. Do, so most feeding of, of subtropicals like that you do in the warmer months. Okay, so I could give it a little feed now, just a small one, and yeah, or... but but don't overfeed. No, it. don't okay. overfeed it. I we mean, do, it, we do tend to overfeed yeah. our plants. 
Yes. I mean, if, you, if you've already given it dynamic lifter, I'd, I'd just yep. maybe give it yep. a bit of cow manure or something and okay. mulch it well. Yep, yep. No worries. Well, hopefully next year I'll have, an even, I'll have a bumper crop of exactly. maybe three well, or four. Yeah, well, but just be you patient. You should do, yes. Yeah, so yep. A little yep. bit of patience. No worries. Thank you very much. Okay, then. Bye. Bye-bye. And uh, I think we have uh, Deborah out in Hoppers Crossing. Are you there, Deborah? Yes, good morning. And Hi. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity. I have a, 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 some kind of a wildflower. I thought at first it was a, um, an orchid because of the way the leaves are arranged and so forth. So the, the plant itself forms a cross with its leaves, flat on the ground almost. Um, I thought it had four petals, but it must have been a wind weather damaged day when I first spotted it. it it's a lilac, pale lilac flower, uh, six petals, um, a purple centre with a stripe that radiates from that centre um, and a yellow reproductive part, fluffy, you know, the... Yeah, the stamens. Yeah, that's yeah. the one, that's mm. the word, thanks, Stephen. Um, I, and I got so excited because I thought, what is this? And actually, I've left a message on your um, website, Stephen. But all right, well, things have changed a lot since then. I'm struggling to get... Uh, I've uh, realised all of that. Yep. Yeah, but I know I was going to say I'm struggling to get my messages through my website, so there's something oh, going yes. wrong with my website at oh, the moment. Okay. Uh, so I may or may not get the message. I've, got to, I've right. actually got to talk to my web setter upper to see whether yes. he can find out whether there's been some sort of hacking or something's been oh going on. Um, uh, I would suggest if you wanted to, uh, the best thing to do is to send me a picture and you can't actually send photos through my website no. from the contact me thing. No. So you're better to actually send it to my email address. Yes. Uh, and then I'm very happy to have a look at it and see if I can ID it for you yes. and then send you an answer if I can. Oh, thank um, you. And my website's all lowercase, oh my, sorry, my email address yes. is all lowercase and it's the name of my garden. So it's Tugurium, T-U-G-U-R-I-U-M at bigpond.com. Thank you. So send me a photo of it and we'll see if we can pin down what it is. Yes, because I'm worried about, um, well, I've told my husband, don't get the mower anywhere near that. Mm -hmm. But not only that, then it's there. I I know that wildflowers and things, you're not allowed to move. So I just think, hmm. It might be a wild weed. Oh, Gee, it's fairly. It's it's lucky to survive all the other weeds because I called the front the front paddock and the back the back paddock. <laughs> so you know, I've, I know every weed that we've got. Oh, and this isn't one of them. That, that's right. Yeah. Well, right, that sounds well, very nice. Yeah. So send us a, uh, an image and we'll see what we can do. About I shall, it. and thank you so very very much. And that's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, that'll be interesting, Stephen. Yes, yes, and hopefully when I see we'll the picture... We'll want to report back. Yeah, yes. I'll hopefully recognise what it is or the, hopefully the photo's good enough to be able to make the ID, which is always an issue if people don't send a clear enough picture. And it generally is a good idea to take a picture of the plant as a whole and then a close-up of the flower oh, so hmm. that you, you can compare the two. Because yes. the one picture on its own doesn't always give you all the details that you need to sort of make that sort of diagnostic thing. Mm. So, mm. Yeah, so there you go. All right, we'll do our best. We do have time for a couple of plants. All right, well, quickly, uh, would anybody other than Virginia guess what this plant is? Because I did actually, uh, she did actually have to look up the country of origin for me because I'd forgotten. 
Probably not. It's an oak. Probably not. It doesn't. It does not look like an oak. Tree. It is an oak. Mm. This is Quercus glauca, uh, which is the Japanese blue oak. Uh, it's an evergreen oak. Um, it makes quite a lovely tree. Uh, it's drought tolerant. It's heat tolerant. It's uh, uh, not particularly fussy about soil types, uh, and it won't give away its identity until it starts getting acorns, and then you'll suddenly realise okay. it's got an oak tree. Okay. Uh, uh, its leaves are a classical uh, sort of. Obvate leaf shape, really, sort of a classic leaf. Uh, the, <laughs> the new growth has a coppery tinge to it, which is quite pretty. They call it a blue oak fruit because apparently when it gets going, it, it has a bluey, grey look to the foliage. Um, and um, we don't see many of the evergreen oaks grown here in Australia. Mm. You know, occasionally you'll come across somebody who's put in a cork oak or a holm oak or something. But, you know, the, the evergreen oaks do seem to, seem to be few and far between in Australia. And the cochineal one, too, yeah. that's evergreen. How, yeah. how big can that oak get? It's a moderately there? large tree. It could get up to around about the 10-metre mark, probably. Oh. So mm. moderately large. Um, like most of the evergreen oaks, it could be hedged. Uh, if you had enough of them to make a hedge, because they're not that easy to get. Uh, uh, and like most of the oaks, they tend to not be high in resins and things, so they're actually quite good fire-retardant trees and things yeah. like that. Um, and we don't see enough oaks grown in this country. I mean, they really they are, are good. And they're very hardy, aren't they? They are tough as billy on most oaks. Um, and we should be growing them more because uh, uh, they tolerate our sort of Mediterranean-type climate really well, mm. um, and uh, they aren't as slow-growing in general as people think. You know, people think of oak trees as being exceedingly slow-growing, but you plant a young oak, and four or five years down the track, you can have quite a substantial plant. They're, they're not also, that slow. Also, I think people don't realise that plants, trees here grow a lot bigger and a lot faster yeah. than in their home countries yeah. often. Since, well, they often do, yes. Since the fires, we planted most of our, our garden back in oaks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And where we found we could keep water regularly to them, they just kept going and they grew really well. Oh, yes, they can. They can they make do really like good water. trees. Mm. And they make great shade trees. Um, most oaks live for a very long time, so you're planting yes. something that could well be there for centuries, potentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's so much diversity amongst them. I mean, people sort of think of oak trees and they think of the English oak or perhaps the pin oak, yeah. but they go a lot further than that. And mm. um, There's hundreds of wild species. Uh, yes. There's quite a number of man-made selections and hybrids, uh, and you could have a lot of fun collecting them as long as you're on acreage. <laughs> you would need Big space. acreage. Yes, you'd need space to actually collect oaks, um, but it doesn't mean that you can't have just a small quantity of interesting oak trees in the garden. Mm. Just one point of warning I'll make about oaks is oaks like eucalypts are very promiscuous and if you're collecting acorns from an area where there's several oaks growing nearby that are of different species, your chances of them being pure and species form are actually quite slim. Uh, you're more likely to end up with hybrids. And I remember years ago, after the Ash Wednesday bushfires in 83, we had a couple of the um, taxonomists and botanists from the Botanic Gardens came up to Mount Macedon after the fires to do some surveys on a couple of the gardens to see what was still left in some of our big gardens up there. And if they were going to have an argument... It was always over and over. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, yeah, that's Quercus roba. Oh, no, 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 no. I think there's some Quercus canariensis in there uh, somewhere. You know, uh -huh. so, so there'd always be this debate over, over whether it was a pure species right. or whether it was actually a hybrid. Okay. So oaks are very promiscuous, so you can't be terribly sure unless 
your oak tree that you're collecting seed from is fairly well isolated from other oaks, uh, you can't really be confident that, uh, in fact, it is, in fact, the wild species. Many, many oaks um, can be great for growing, uh, for building little cubby houses in. Yes. Because well, of they, their horizontal branches. Yeah, they, they make really beautifully structural trees. Yes. There is one oak in the Botanic Gardens which is hand high. Mm. It's a really, oh, it's called miniature. I can't remember its, its Latin name, but it means miniature. Probably Quercus nana or something <laughs> like that. Uh, minuta. Uh, and there are a couple of huge Minuta. Yeah. I like that, Minuta. Yeah, Minuta is a good name for anything <laughs> tiny. Um, but yes, so not all oaks are big trees. I mean, there are plenty yeah. of shrubby oaks. Uh, mm. And there's a lot of evergreen oaks. You know, people talk in America about live oaks, and what they mean by live oaks is the evergreen oaks, oh, right. uh, because they look alive all year. <clears throat> and we're running out of time. It's nearly quarter past. Couldn't we are we? running out of time. Mm. So... Um, um, a quick reminder to listeners, Graham, if they go to uh, Silky's Rose Farm, yes. um, they Online. can look up when, when your next lot of workshops yes. are going to be taking place on summer pruning. Yes. Okay, and Stephen, just a quick reminder to listeners, if anyone does want to come on the trip next year. Yep, get in touch with ASA and the trips from the 6th to the 26th of May, and it's the south of France. Fantastic. Okay, we've run out of time for another week. We will be back at uh, 7.30 next week. A big thank you to the panel and also to Louise, who's been handling all the calls. Until next week, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.